Good afternoon from Soundbridge in Benaroya Hall, Seattle, where we're joined by a live studio audience for this latest Classical Conversations podcast produced by the Seattle Chamber Music Society in collaboration with listener-supported Classical King FM at 98.1 here in Seattle, also king.org. I'm Dave Beck, afternoon host at King FM, and it's my great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with artists gathered for the annual Summer Festival, season 36 this year. King FM broadcasts all the concerts in Nordstrom Recital Hall live this summer. This is uh, first of three podcasts that we'll do. The next Classical Conversations gathering, if you'd like to join us in person in Soundbridge here, are on July 12th and July 21st, both at noon. Today's conversation with the festival veteran and distinguished international concert pianist Andrew Armstrong will be not only a celebration and exploration of Andy's career and recordings and musical interests and passions, but also a study in what happens when things don't go according <laughs> to plan. There were some unexpected twists and turns in the story of the opening week of this year's festival, and Andrew a wonderful pianist and artist and teacher and collaborator and wit is back with us again to to tell us that story and um, enlighten us on all things musical. Let's welcome him this afternoon. So we get to begin today with breaking Seattle Chamber Music Society Festival news, That's which right. is, uh, and I'm really very sorry about this. Um, you injured yourself this week and. Uh, the Wednesday, you played successfully on Monday night. The Wednesday concerts were changed um, significantly. Right, and, um, right. So tell me how you're doing, what happened. And well, gosh, it's great to see you, Dave Beck. It's so <laughs> nice. good to see it's you. Good to see you. Um, I was worried when I, I burned my fingers, accidentally uh, touched a frying pan, was making eggs on Wednesday morning, day of the concert. Um, and uh, one thing I worried about is I wouldn't get to visit with you. you oh, know, I thought maybe sweet. they'd say, well, if, you know, uh, if you don't play the piano, you can't you can't see Dave back. But luckily, I got a text saying, "Are you still Are you still gonna go see Dave?" Um, yeah, Wednesday morning. Um, well, I won't bore you with the gory, slow details. Um, uh, Ninety nine times out of a hundred, I crack an egg with a little shell coming into it, and I go across the kitchen and get a fork or a spoon. And on this day, I was in a hurry and I wanted to get the second egg cracked. And I thought, well, I'll just very carefully, quickly pick that shell out, and I was so focused on my second finger and my first finger of my left hand that I did not see my fourth and fifth fingers being so close mm. to the pan. And uh, uh, So it's funny. Um, the story is, is really not about me. The story is so incredibly about um, the just unspeakably great people all around Seattle Chamber Music Society, Seattle Chamber Music Festival. Uh, Connie Cooper, who's here in the audience today, who um, who somehow miraculously makes everything work at this festival, and James Ennis, who Thursday morning had to fly, I think, to Colorado to play Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, but Wednesday morning, as the artistic director here, and as the violinist who was slated to play his very first Shostakovich Violin Sonata um, that night with, you. with me. Um, gets a text from me, I think it was 9.30 or something like that, in a panic, obviously. I, I didn't, I'm not really great in a crisis situation. Um, and um, so he had to figure out what to do with that. And there was a theme to the program, Russian music. Um, and at first the idea was, well, we just, we need to make a great program. 
you know, uh, he had some Bach solo in his fingers. And then unbelievably, with all the great personnel that uh, is constantly around Seattle Chamber Music Society, and specifically the great personnel that's here this week, they pulled it together. And um, George Lee, the incredible young pianist, um, he said, well, I have a Rachmaninoff solo piece. It's just... Uh, as James very wittily told the audience the other night, um, we had all this music at our fingertips, which <laughs> he said is the operative term of the day. Um, and, um, and then <laughs> I, I'll never, to my dying day, I will never know how James and Andrew Wan, who's one of my favorite violinists on the planet, um, pulled together Prokofiev's immensely difficult sonata for two violins in a half a day, and it did not sound like a piece pulled together in a half a day. It's a multi-movement, yeah. complex, intense work. Um, and it, I, was, I listened and I just, I just thought, this is the performance I've wanted to hear all my life. Like, it was incredible. Mm. I mean, I just don't know how they did it. And yeah, then, you, you said it was like they had that on their calendar for seven months. Exactly. It, it, it had that. It felt role. like, yeah, it felt like they had been every day waking up and drinking a glass of raw eggs and, um, <laughs> and being like, Prokofiev, two violent sonata. <laughs> Only 182 days until the, the night. <laughs> um, and then an intense eight-hour schedule. That's part of your preparation, day. isn't it, for anything in the... It the is, egg. it is, it is. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, the greatest challenge involved with that for me is just finding the, the sweatsuits that really look that yeah. Sylvester Stallone 1980, you know, 1978 vintage is hard to find, but I yeah, track them down. That's right. It's all in the details. Yeah. Uh, so um, the Monday concert is going to still be a world premiere that you were uh, originally yes. slated to be in of yes. Lisa Bielava's uh, new piece. Um, what contingencies have been put in place for that? Well, um, I, I hope I just I hope I'll be forgiven. Um, there are people in this world that I am unspeakably grateful to know, and uh, I'm in a great sense of awe that you know that my life uh, promises to remain in contact with these people. So I'm sorry to to just wax um, um, so glowingly about about people, but um, Lisa Bialava, I'd love to talk about her. She's in, uh, just a towering towering intellect of a composer and um, just an absolutely urgent voice in in the classical music world uh, today, uh, one that's just terribly important to me, and I'd love to talk about her. And also I'd love to speak about Jiwon Park, who is uh, a pianist of, of just unspeakable gifts and, um, you know, changing the Shostakovich sonata to Prokofiev sonata was something that could be done, but uh, not performing Lisa's piece, um, that's just sort of not, it's just not possible. It would be such a big bummer. It just can't be done. Mm-hmm. And when the idea came up, well, could G- is Jiwon Park free? It was just such a no-brainer because she's just one of these talents. Um, and I, I love to tell the story of my first interaction with her musically as an example of why her playing Lisa's piece uh, on such short notice is something that I'm totally excited and at ease with. Um, the first time I had any interaction with Jiwon in music, um, she was at that time dating Edward Aaron, the world-class cellist mm-hmm. who, who plays here as well. Um, and I knew that she was a pianist, but I just knew her as Eddie's girlfriend. And <laughs> she was at Juilliard School. We were all much younger in those days. And 
she sweetly said to me, and a lot of pianists are, are sort of solitary and um, competitive, but she said in the sweetest colle collegial way, she said, can we, you know, if you ever have, Andy, if you have a concerto you're going to play with orchestra and you want to run it through before you go practice with the orchestra, I can play the orchestra part on the piano for you just for fun. I'll just do that. And it's like, who, who offers that? <laughs> it's like out of the blue. And I, and I thought, well, I wouldn't really take her up on that. But then later that same season, I got to play Scriabin's Piano Concerto in F sharp major, which means six sharps. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was my first time getting to play that masterpiece. And um, I was nervous about the first rehearsal with orchestra. And I thought, God, that would really help. And I, I said, I wrote her, I said, is that really? I mean, can I take you up on that? And she said, yes, of course. Let's, and so we scheduled two weeks from then. I said, you want me to send you the music? She said, no, that's all right. I, I'm here at Juilliard. They have it at the library. I said, okay. About a week later, I said, okay, so I'll see you in a week. Have you, have you gotten the music? Have you looked at it? It's really hard. She said, oh, no, I'll, I'll grab it. Don't worry. I'll get it. I'll get it. A couple days before, have you looked at the music? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, to I'll totally get it. It's not a problem. Don't worry about it. So day, day of, I was living 30 minutes outside of New York City, and I thought, why am I getting in this car and driving to Juilliard? she's not going to be able to help me with this piece. Like, there's nothing she'll be able to do. It's such a hard piece, and she hasn't taken any time on it. She was extremely busy at Juilliard with all the different um, repertoire she was juggling there. So I get to Juilliard, and I go to the assigned room, and she's sent me a text message. I'll, uh, I'll be there in a few minutes. I'm at the library picking up the music. <laughs> Great. All right, we'll go have a coffee. Remember, she is doing this as a favor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not about that. It's just about the, she knew herself. She knew her abilities. And, and I was telling the story to another uh, colleague, a great pianist, who, who shared my complete disbelief because the other pianist and I, uh, it's like, you know, oh, I've got that thing in, you know, six months if I start practicing now, you know. Um, so all I can tell you is that Jiwon came into the room. She put the music up on the score, on the on the um, stand. I don't know if you've ever seen those old cartoons with Wiley e. Coyote and uh, where there's like a f there's like a huge cloud of dust and occasionally an arm emerges from the dust <laughs> and the rubble and a foot. But that's what it looked like, and uh, an arm would shoot out and turn a page, and um, arms would jump into different parts of the piano. Um, and she was nailing it. She was sight reading the whole orchestra part and nailing it. And I started getting nervous and making mistakes. Like, <laughs> like, wait, how is this happening? And I'm what? I'm like looking over at like as though I'm just in a in a, in a, on a um, uh, on another planet, seeing you know, getting to see uh, a superhuman. You know, just like what is going on? Uh, and she just totally nailed it. And, and every now and then she said, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just turning pages because she might have clipped one note. And so, so this will be nothing Did we say what her. the piece was? Uh, do, you, do you remember? It was Scriabin's Piano Scri Concerto yeah, and F-sharp sharp major. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yes, and uh, I recommend it. I, it's, I don't know why. I, I love, you know, I love uh, Rachmaninoff's second and third piano concertos yeah. as, as much as anyone has ever loved them. But, I mean, you, I don't know why we don't get a few more Scriabins yeah. thrown. And it's such a masterpiece. So yeah. she's essentially sight-reading Scriabin with you. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, so what's she up against for Monday? In the so, here, so here's the thing with Monday. And um, the good news is so much of the work with Lisa's piece is um, it's about sitting with, our incredible flute player and uh, horn player, um, Lorna McGee and Jeff Fair. Yeah. And 
and feeling out. So uh, let's talk about the piece, if, if we could. Um, Lisa is a terribly well-read composer. Um, she reads um, all the time at a very deep level. And one of the things that she's been very interested in recently is speculative fiction. The idea where you you remove yourself from the the chains and the constraints of what what you we might agree on is reality as well as we can agree on that, um, and maybe you put yourself in a it's like in historical fiction you know you you send yourself to another time and you write a fiction in that place in speculative fiction you say well what if what if things were different from what they are? You know, um, in science fiction, you know, you say, well, what if, you know, we were in the future and things were thus? You know, um, and so in speculative fiction, you know, um, and she writes so eloquently about this. I think in her program notes here, um, you, people will write about, well, what if there really were a beautiful equality, you know, going on on the globe right now? And what if that were, you know, something achieved? And what if people were not oppressed? And, you know, different things like this. And it's a great, it's a fascinating tool to see what sort of narratives emerge in an alternative reality. Hmm. And so she's so intrigued by that in her reading. And it's, and it's finding expression now in her in her compositional right. pen, yeah, and so she, she, she started. She was writing for a flute and a horn and piano, and and she started to hear bird calls. But the great, um, the great joke is that she is no ornithologist, and um, she doesn't know a speckled hen from a, um, <laughs> a Stellar's jay. So. Um, nor do I. I just learned that term stellar shade yesterday, um, <laughs> and I will have forgotten it by tomorrow. Um, so, so what happened is she started writing a speculative fiction of all these birds that um, exist only in Lisa Bielawa's imagination, wow. and to, uh, I guess Monday night in many more of our imaginations. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember all of all of the birds off the top of my head, but I can tell you. There are three-winged birds that fly only in circles. There are birds that can fly through walls. There are uh, hundred-year-old birds. There are birds as big as zeppelins. Um, uh, what was it? Birds from outer space. There are just so many fascinating uh, things. And, and one of the techniques that you will hear right from the start of this piece is that Lorna is given a bunch of little boxes of quick little calls that exist only in Lisa Bielava's head uh, of bird calls. And, and Lorna is given the direction to repeat these bird calls for a certain amount of time in any order. And so it will, it will be Lorna's job to create for us this, this little kind of micro ecosystem of birds, this little aviary uh, uh, and to decide which birds are calling when, wow. um, and then uh, and then G one will come in with this yeah. uh, glorious tremolo under that. It's called fictional migrations. We yes, beg your pardon. I should have no, mentioned. That's, yeah, that's okay. Fictional migrations. So you you were before the injury, you were able to play Lisa's music on Monday night. Is that is that right? Or, or, right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So what happened is James <clears throat> asked me, could I do a pre-concert playing Aaron J. Kernis's absolute masterpiece, uh, Beyond Sleep and Dreams. And I said to him, you know, Lisa's coming to town for, for her commission, and I'm so fond of her work, which is called Wait, W-A-I-T, mm. uh, as in take your time. Um, 
that she wrote in 2002 for piano and drone, meaning just a single note that is, um, that is sung or played continuously by another instrument or group of instruments. And I said, can I throw that in? And he said, absolutely. So, um, and I think that was kind of a cool, different sort of moment. It was, I don't know how often we've done spatial things here um, at Seattle Chamber Music Society, but we had the drone positioned behind the audience where they didn't, and, and uh, James said afterward, it really did sound like the very hall wow. was humming with this unison D. Um, so it, it was very nice to, to it's typical Lisa, typical Lisa Bialava to introduce uh, something really new and bracing. I, I said bracing, but I could also say embracing at the same time mm -hmm. to an audience. So it was really fun to be a part of that. Yeah. So um, what do you anticipate your role will be? You're going to stay here through the, through the premiere to, to help yeah. out, to um, you know, return the favor for Chi Wan to, right, to help right, her get through this right. Well, piece. the minute we finish this podcast, I'm going to meet her husband with my score, which has some markings from from my work on it. Um, uh, and I I fear they'll be more burdensome than trouble than helpful to her. But um, she said, you know, she'd love to just look at them. And then, frankly, you know, if they'll if they'll have me at any of their rehearsals, um, I, you know, this is I mean, this is like this starts to become a child of yours, you know, and then yeah. you burn your fingertips like an absolute idiot. And um, it's hard to, it's hard to let go. I'll, I mean, I'll confess on the, through the microphone that I asked you ahead of time, let's please not talk too much about the Shostakovich Violin Sonata and the Korngold Quintet that, because it's just, it's so painful to me to yeah. like all this, what you pour into that and then to say, I don't get to play it. So, um, you know, with, uh, with that said, um, getting if they'll let me be around the experience a little bit and just listen, um, you know, and if they ask me something, I'll do my best to answer it. But just being a part of part of it and, and getting to hear Lisa interact with them. She's she's such a she's one of those composers that's uh, very active if if the musicians wish her to be right. in elucidating questions and stuff. So it's going to be a very fun uh, process for all of them. And I think there's uh, an open rehearsal or to at least one. No, there is no open rehearsal ever. <laughs> there and is a, we uh, would like to urge people to stay out of downtown Seattle for the next three days uh, is the official word. I'm, yeah, I've just got confirmation on that. Yeah, so please do we, stay. We said this podcast would be full of breaking news. So we are, <laughs> we're talking to our producer right now as we speak. Um, I have a feeling they're going to, they'll let you sneak in and be a part I of it. I hope so. And uh, we should remind people, uh, well, a couple things. There's a great interview on the Seattle Chamber Music Society website with Lisa about her, her process and kind of about how this came together. And um, there will be a half an hour um, on Monday night, the 9th, or excuse me, the 10th, uh, in which she's there with the musicians talking about her the piece. So that'll be the pre-concert recital on Monday night. She's fun to listen to. She's so articulate. Yeah. And, and it, it, a note in this interview talks about her being, as you indicated right there, a, a very social person. Like she, she wants to talk to the musicians and know what they're thinking and reacting and... Um, so I think I think it's one of the reasons that she and I artistically have um, uh, valued each other's work is that um, she she like like I do I think she she really feels that you know there are people that um, are into um, music or art or whatever it is for for showing off 
purposes or for, um, you know, just love of aesthetics and proportion or any number of things. For her, and, and I would say for me, or I should, for me, and I would say for her, it's about connecting. It's about connecting with people, engaging with people, sharing with people, um, creating those connections. And so she's so great uh, in speaking as well as in, in her music making, mm -hmm. in achieving that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an urgent life's mission for her. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things about this is uh, if, if, if something like this um, has to happen, this in some ways it's a it's a good time for you because you have some big personal news yes. on the i mean you're going to be taking some time off in any case pretty pretty soon what, yeah. what's going on yeah. with you and your family yeah my wife and i are having our first baby in a month and a half and um so we had it was baked into the pudding that uh, i would be off of uh concert work starting next week so if i could have just put off my hankering for eggs for a week, this uh, would have actually had zero impact mm. uh, on my piano life. But um, uh, sadly, I had, I'd had oatmeal for three mornings in a row, and so I stupidly <laughs> uh, I changed to eggs. Um, <laughs> so if I had just had a different topping for the oatmeal, I probably could have stuck it out. Um, it's your own speculative fiction <laughs> in, in creation. But we're so excited yeah, for our baby. I'll, after Lisa's performance on Monday, I'll take the red eye home and we'll um, we'll start buying uh, some baby clothes and uh, putting the crib together and getting all that stuff ready. And it's uh, excellent. It's I'm be told fun. your wife is a nurse. She's a so superwoman who also nurses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those uh, and those are serious blisters that you have <laughs> yeah. on your. So uh, yeah. take good care, Andy, and sorry yeah, again for that. But, yeah, thanks, uh, and thanks for sharing so authentically about what's been going on with this, because it's <laughs> thanks, uh, as much as we're laughing, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough thing. But looking forward to Lisa's piece. And you've set this up nicely, uh, talking about Russian music and Skriab. And you did a recording. It's, it's been over a decade ago now, but uh, it was all Russian music, Rachmaninoff, yeah. Skriabin, yeah. and, and Zorksky. And I just want to want to play some music as we do on these podcasts. And I have a little uh, excerpt here of Mazorksky from Pictures in an Exhibition. Uh. We'll we'll play a, play a little bit of this and, and talk about it a bit here. <laughs> From pictures in an exhibition, Andrew Armstrong's recording. Um, Russian music have a stronghold on you? What's. Um... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 
I love Russian music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah, um, I was, uh, I was that year just infatuated with the Mazarski pictures at an exhibition, and well, probably that decade I was infatuated with <laughs> pictures at an exhibition and um, Rachmaninoff's Second Sonata, and I thought, how do I fill this CD out? And um, and I was so in love with Scriabin's Ninth Sonata, and I, and then I I was reading more about it and just, just discovering that it was written in the exact same year as Rachmaninoff's second sonata. So the second sonata of Rachmaninoff is just unspeakably romantic. Just the, just the, the syrup is just dripping <laughs> off of every corner of every measure in, in the Rachmaninoff sonata. And Scriabin's ninth sonata is, um, is so upsetting and uh, scary um, uh, actually, um, I remember playing it for Lisa back in the, those hmm. days over 10 years. And she said, she said, you could play this for any, any uh, contemporary composer and they would have nothing to say about it not being still completely forward looking, wow. you know, and it would, this is, you know, a hundred years later, we're talking about a 1913 composition. She says, this is still absolutely current, like, hmm. because he was just so ahead of himself. Um, and mind you, Scriabin was a fellow who had grown up with Chopin's music under his pillow, writing music that was that really could have been Chopin with a Russian. You know, his you listen to, um, you know, his early preludes and and that uh, concerto that I performed, which is an earlier work, um, and uh, the second sonata, for instance. I mean, this is really romantic stuff. And then by the end, he was he was writing these. Um, really conceptual scary things he got into these weird mystical places where he would he i mean the ninth sonata of the black mass is so scary that um there, there there's a moment i mean there are moments and i have visual images when i play it that are not exactly comfortable for me and um hmm. he himself said that he refused to play his sixth sonata in public because he believed it was possessed by a demon and so he was kind of a kooky guy. But I mean, here he was. He was a classmate of Rachmaninoff. And the two of them were uh, living in the same house with their teacher, doing the same practice each right. morning from whatever it was, six in the morning. They'd do like three hours of scales before breakfast and stuff. And then they just went into such fascinatingly different places. So I wanted to study that on the CD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I have uh, little excerpts from both of them. So we'll kind of oh, hear cool. that. Both from 1913, as you say. Yeah. And Rachmaninoff was a great champion of Scriabin, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was impossible for the, uh, you know, not to appreciate what was going on there. I mean, um, you just, uh, a musical mind like Rachmaninoff, you just can't not, not hear what Scriabin is doing there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Um, you, one, of, one of the things that you write about, you have lovely liner notes for this project, and I know Thanks, it's, it's, it's been more than a decade, so if you don't remember every word that you wrote, <laughs> I understand that. But um, I, read it, I read it every morning. <laughs> it's a good refresher. I'm proud of it. Um, just, you talk about how you really have a strong preference for pictures in the original piano version. Oh, as, yeah. as famous as Ravel has you know, made the piece through his 1922 orchestration, that it's, it's all about playing it on the piano for, for you. I'm I'm so fascinated by the idea of framing. Um, where does where does the art begin and where does uh, where does it end? Where does the real world begin and end? And um, um, yeah, frames are just very very interesting to me. Um, 
like there's a there's a there's a legend about a, a Columbia professor back in the 70s, a humanities professor who went into the Museum of Modern Art and he put some ropes up around uh, a, a drinking fountain. This was Wallace Gray. He was a famous professor. And he put ropes up around a water fountain that people had been drinking out of, and he had made up a plaque. And the plaque said "Water Fountain by Wallace Gray, 1971 or whatever it was," <laughs> and. Um, it was such a fascinating conceptual little thing to do. Um, and he had it done up in the same style as all the MoMA, you know, plaques. And, uh, in, in, and just inevitably, people started congregating. And they would linger and study this water fountain with great care for 20 minutes and discuss it. And look at the, look at the, the, the realism of the, of the copper deposits under the you know the thing and and his and his great point was you know what is art is the minute you put a frame around it the minute is i mean is that is that all it is? is that already art just that you've said this this moment right here this thing right here this this is not part of your daily life anymore this is something to study you know is that enough it was just such an a, just a fascinating question to me. And so you're wondering how this is related to the piano version of uh, pictures at an exhibition but um, I trust you. <laughs> I have to earn that trust, Dave. Um, Ravel's version is huge, and I, I, I loved it growing up. It was one of the first things I grew up listening to, and I just adored it. It's a huge, huge uh, achievement, and when you listen to it, I mean, you've got, you get the percussion going nuts in, uh, you know, the Great Gate at Kiev, and um, I mean, it's huge, and it's incredible, but it's, it's, put upon such a vast canvas, the frame is so massive, that the scale, to me, the canvas is somehow, has a little less impact to me, because you have so much art being put onto such a massive canvas, whereas when a single piano is, is your frame, and everything that Mussorgsky achieves in that framing, to me, it somehow, is so much bigger. It, the piano version is bigger to me somehow. Uh. Um, and then the, the, I mean, the counterexample to that for me would be Mahler's Second Symphony, where you have this chorus of just un unbelievable uh, amount of people screaming their lungs out at the end of that symphony, and the organ enters for the first time in 70 minutes all of a sudden, <laughs> and um, and you have your vocal soloist singing at the top of the lungs. Everybody's just so big and. It's, to this day, the most intimate experience I've ever had uh, sitting in an audience. And I, I can't walk away from a performance of that piece uh, not totally ruined, because it's, it's really like Mahler is alive again and whispering with incredible urgency to just me. And everybody else in the audience is not even there. And, and he's revealing things to me that you know, wives and husbands don't reveal to each other about, about um, his vulnerability and the urgency of his uh, situation um, as a human being. And, and so it's just so interesting that different um, media, different groups of people can create such different um, frames, such yeah. different canvases of, of, of in great, you know, great masses coming in to deliver intimacy or you know, a single person on uh, on a piano revealing something 
grander, you yeah. know. It is very interesting to me reading about sort of the history of the transcriptions of pictures. Uh, the Ravel is the most famous, but there's 20-some done. And um, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov, who famously salvaged, some would say, Night on Bald Mountain, he wouldn't touch pictures. He, he just... I think he understood frames or something, uh, and he just wonder, yeah. he let a, he let a student of his who I think was the first person who transcribed it for an orchestra, but he he didn't want to be messing with that. I want I wonder what his reason. Is. It's a great yeah. a great question, and I um, it, it's very clear what rich rich soil that is that so many people have undertaken to um, to orchestrate it, yeah. as you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll return to this because I want to um, play a little bit of. Um, the uh, Rachmaninoff and the Scriabins, as we've referred to it. But uh, we'll take a detour by way of Prokofiev, since we like to keep it Russian this week. <laughs> and this is this beautiful recording you did with um, James Ennis of the Prokofiev, uh, originally for flute, but uh, violin sonata from uh, the early 1940s. So we'll listen to a little bit of that and, and talk a bit about Prokofiev. <laughs> Listen to that. Does, does that bring back particular memories of working with James, or those yeah. sessions, or what first comes to mind? Yeah, I'm just fighting the smiles because um, uh, just I love James was playing so much, and and yeah, that brings back memories of rehearsing in his music room in Florida and the recording process, and just the um, uh, the irrepressible energy that he brings to his Prokofiev. I think, you know, I just I, I so adore that. There are players out there that they say, well, I'm I'm playing. Prokofiev or Bartok or Shostakovich now. So the important thing is to not worry about my sound quality. And in fact, I'll, I'll make some really grotesque sounds and that'll really reveal Prokofiev to you. And um, I just, I love that, um, I love that James captures all the different colors um, while always, while always sounding like James and always making it just a gorgeous, gorgeous sound. Um, yeah. Immaculate, impeccable. I, and there's, you know, those are the kind of adjectives come along when you think of his playing. Yeah. And I, I don't, from what I've got to know about him too, I don't, I, he doesn't cotton to that way of thinking like, I, I can do this or I, you know, it's like you always have to have a, a beautiful, well thought out sound and it has, I mean, he, yeah. it's like I've, standards, high standards. Yeah. <laughs> the word camouflage just jumped into my uh, head. My teacher used to refer to Roboto 911, or emergency Roboto. She said we would listen to a concert and someone would get to the hard part and suddenly like <laughs> expressively slow down and <laughs> get to all of the notes. And she would say, oh, that was pretty good um, expressive Roboto. Um, uh, and I'm suddenly thinking of camouflage. I, I, you know, 
um, I hope it won't be in, I don't want to speak in an ugly fashion. Um, I will say that in my lifetime, I think it's not any great revelation to say that in my lifetime I have um, had occasion to play concerts and, and to do work with people that are um, not not James's equal or the equal of all these wonderful players here at Seattle Chamber Music Society. And one thing that's so common, it, it's it's a kind of it's a, it's a cousin of Roboto nine one one, which is these different camouflages where someone will not be reading carefully. They don't they don't actually do the various things that the composer clearly wrote to do. You know, expressive markings, timing markings, dynamic markings, and they'll play out of tune or not with a good sound quality. But then all of a sudden they'll do a slide that just distracts you. Oh, they're very expressive, or they'll suddenly play softer than they've ever played in their whole life, or, or make such a grotesque sound that you say, well, oh, I'm really going for a color there. And I really f I find these things are, are they're, they're supposed, they're, I guess in our, in our political discourse these days, we talk about uh, people trying to distract, uh, you know, people doing distractions from other things. And, uh. Um, I, I, I've played with players where it's, there's, it's all about distraction and um, oh, I'll just I'll make this person think about how brilliant this color was that I did here so they won't notice the, the entire page where I was not in any touch at all with the composer's <laughs> intent and um, and I, I've never I've never I've never been a passenger in the car with James musically where there was a half a second of that uh, of that experience. Uh. Uh, of you know oh I'll just you know I'll just make this work somehow or make it sound like you know like we're doing the right thing when we're not. Yeah, yeah. well it's it's brilliant playing there, uh, Rubato nine one one. I have not heard that term before, but I'm I'm now going to be using it frequently. I'm sure. Um, you know you've heard it a million times, right? You know exactly. Well, what yeah. Um, well, and then sometimes in in teaching I've had it. it you know it's um, you're you're encouraged to you know spread out. I had a teacher who would say, make it sound, um, if you play it cleanly, people won't worry about how fast it is. I mm -hmm. mean, and I'm sure mm -hmm. that's true to a certain mm -hmm. extent. But but where does it veer over into, I, I just can't quite play it that fast. So, right, and right. It, um, so right. it's a very thin line to tread sometimes. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, well, something I would love to talk with you about today, um, which is accident, um, with a capital A. but. Uh, before, before I get to that, um, uh, what, what was my train? Oh, on Roboto nine one one, James's father, who was a great trumpet player uh, and a professor at Brandon University, had such a great saying. He used to tell James when James was just a little lad practicing. He would say, you know, some really important, like really fast movement, a presto movement. He would say, James, play that part as fast as you can, not as fast as you can't. <laughs> and I love that. I love That's that right. expression. Because <laughs> too many of us play things as fast as we can't. Yeah. But uh, I just want to say about accident, because um, I didn't realize till just when we were in the final moments before the podcast and talking about my frying pan thing, this year, by chance, I have been more than ever in my life just so fascinated by the role of accident with a capital A or chaos with a capital C in the creative process you know it's like as as young musicians we work so hard on intent 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 um, we work to improve ourselves so that we are limitless you know we never we never want to say I can't play that part that fast as I need to slow down uh, I need Roboto 911 we work to, to never have to do that we work to be to 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 share with people with an intention this is the this is the message and I've achieved it the way I wanted to but 
um, as I've gotten older, I, I'm so fascinated um, that accident and chaos are, are very positive parts, not when we're cooking, but um, very positive parts of the creative process too. And I think that's one of the things we love about uh, chamber music is that we rehearse with our friends, but um, one of my favorite things in chamber music is when, is when one of my colleagues gets inspired on stage by a line in a little bit of a different way than they ever have in rehearsal. And how does that play out for me? It's, it's, it's a relative of accident or chaos because now my intent has to absorb this new thing that I, we hadn't rehearsed. I hadn't signed off on this. This was not part of the plan. And, and that's such a vital, fascinating part of the creative process. And, and so you, you've, uh, Dave, you sort of um, uh, nudged me into this topic because, as you say, there are times when what can you do? You, you literally cannot play it at the tempo that the composer has written or you know, the tempo that you want to play the, the overall movement, but that particular passage. And that is, in a way, I mean, those limitations that we have as human beings, that's, that's accident and chaos coming into the... Mm -hmm. yes, we, yes, of course, we fight hard to constantly take away those limitations and overcome them, but, I mean, we are human beings and they are what they are. And, and how do we grapple with them and, and mold them into part of our creation and make them a positive part of it is, is just a, is something that I'm shying away from a lot less in my life, and it's... And it's making things um, actually a lot more exciting hmm. uh, for me. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of rubato, this is not rubato 911. This is rubato, very intentional, because I, I want to play a little bit of the Tchaikov, um, the Rachmaninoff, the B-flat minor sonata from 1913, just because we made uh, reference to it. So we'll hear just a little bit of this. Okay, speaking of happy accidents, this, this is just tying into a bunch of things that we just talked about, because um, you were talking about and this, this piece, Rachmaninoff substantially re revised it, and you, you chose to go back to the original 1913 version, because you said he took out things where maybe he was being too self-conscious about, like, oh, that's too complicated, and it should... But you said, no, no, he kind of got it right the first time, at least yeah. if, I'm, if I'm telling this story right. Absolutely, or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, this piece is one of, is one of the pieces that, um, that encourages me to mischievously call him Bachmaninoff um, <laughs> because um, the counterpoint uh, is, is off the charts. It, I, I mean, speaking of accident in the creative process, 
there are times when he writes five or six irresistibly beautiful lines at the same time, and and you can prioritize them. And at a certain point, there, not all of them will be known to the listener. Will not, not all of them will be revealed in a way that because how can we meet six friends at the same time and learn all their names and and all of that? So. Um, those decisions are so complex. And so I really do feel that the form here of this sonata, the three-movement the three movement form, the structure, uh, and the way that he deals with sonata allegro form um, were really, really uh, influenced by this... Um, the, uh, these unruly children of these, like, romantic melodies, just like so many beautiful golden snakes writhing in every direction that, that can't be controlled and contained. And so I see that, uh, you know, for instance, the first movement, uh, the third movement especially, I see them as like these like massive balls that have been stitched together where the it like can't even be contained. It's just bursting out mm. of them. And and so so you'll be in what's supposed to be the recap and, and it's some wrong passage will just burst out of there that just has and it's just like this excursion it's like we don't need to go there like let's just go where the structure was supposed to go and then we close it and everybody says well done um and and what i just love about the early piece there the original version is that um is that it's not about the destination it's about it's a lot. It's about letting the too much be too much. Oh. And uh, incidentally, Lisa Bialava has a great. Uh, when when I was recording this piece, um, we were listening to different pieces of Rachmaninoff together as friends, and she said, um, "You." Uh, she said Rachmaninoff has this amazing way that he's pulling into the driveway, and you think, "Oh my God, I can't believe we're going to this house. It's the biggest driveway <laughs> ever. It's the most incredible place." But then the gate opens, and it's way more than you ever. It's always wow. he always seems to be taking you to a climax, but then the climax is actually three stages higher than the one you That's, thought you were headed toward. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, um, I I want to. I mean, well, you've given us plenty of examples of this, but I want to spend um, just a couple minutes on humor in music because <laughs> I love your humor, you. and I, I tell this story probably more than I I, I should to when, to when I'm playing chamber music with friends. And so you a uh, couple summers ago did the Poulenc piano wind sextet, and you're playing with all these great wind players, and the and the first movement ends, and and the, these folks take their instruments apart and get out their swabs and they are blowing on the, you know, and checking their reeds and, and uh, Andy Armstrong is sitting at the piano and he sort of looks around and surveys what's going on here. And all of a sudden you, you get up and you have a white rag and you just start polishing the piano. And I just, just uh, you, everybody gave it a moment to kind of let, you know, put that image away. But that's exactly what needed to happen in, as all this. It really um, does my heart so good to know you remember that. Yeah, it, was, it was a great, it was so funny. <laughs> I, I, and um, analyzing humor is a terrible thing. But I mean, were you laying in wait for that gag or did, no. did that just strike you at the it moment? Just struck, it just yeah. struck me at the moment. Um, you know, you're aware. So, we, I mean, we have this narrative thread. We're playing Poulenc and... That's the narrative thread, and we played a, a movement that we were totally committed to. We were totally into it, and now there's this slight step away while we're doing practical things, and there's this narrative thread where it's like, okay, we're not in the Poulenc moment right now. We're doing what needs to be done to make that happen, um, and so 
everybody just dot 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 right now this is just dot 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 <laughs> stay with us a couple things have to be taken care of and it just reached that point where to me you know my antenna says oh wow that dot 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 is now starting to shake from the strain of how long the dot 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 is and are people <laughs> still sort of in Poulang or not yeah. and then it just reached that point where I'm like no, we're not. And we need like we need a renewal. We need something to just start from scratch again. Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, do you have funny people in your family? Was um My dad played a lot of Victor Borga tapes for me when I was oh, a kid. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um and I always say I'm a great disappointment to him that I think he wanted me to be a joker, like a, a big, I, I I tease, of course. He loves what, what I'm doing. But um he 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 I mean we did puns all the time. Um he taught me Tom Swifties, which are things where you make a pun between the quote, the quoted material, and how the quoted material was said. For instance, um, I just made up one the other day. Um, Genghis will never make it down that mountain, said Tom condescendingly. But he was doing puns around the. I guess these are called bad dad jokes, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. or, or I guess that's redundant. They're dad jokes, which yeah. means they're bad. Do you? Um, um, so. What, what do you feel about the whole, you know, a lot of people talk about rhythm and timing and, you know, funny sounds. And is, is that part of, you know, your, your musical training? I don't know if your father was, was musical, but um, you know, some, some musicians, it's just, I think it's, it's sometimes absurd circumstances like the Poulenc, but it's also just this awareness of, you know, the moment and timing. And, yeah, it's know. definitely timing uh, in music and in, and in humor. And, um, I, I have to say my favorite, my favorite moments have been um, when I, when I didn't intend to be funny and I did something really embarrassing, or when I intended to be funny and no one gets it. I, there's no feeling in the world like 800 people in an audience, totally silent after you thought you just told the best joke of your life. <laughs> Um, speaking of accident um, in the creative process, that's uh, those are the moments I live for the most are when I thought I had such a good one and that incredible sense of discomfort of like, oh my gosh, 800 people did yeah. not think that was funny at all. <laughs> those are good ones. But I just want to say um, uh, Don Quixote is one of my favorite uh, books and, and what I find that he does, uh, Cervantes does so brilliantly is this incredible cheek-to-jowl juxtaposition of the highest slapstick farce humor and sometimes the most piteous tragedy. Huh. And sometimes you're reading along and you're laughing your butt off about everything that is happening to Sancho Panza and Don Quixote. And, and you're just, it's like cartoon stuff. You're, you're crying with laughter. You turn the page and you read one more sentence and that sentence he is able to turn faster than any writer I've ever read where that just the incredible and, 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 and what I love about it, if I could get slightly philosophical is that it's, it's the exact same material. It's that, it's that you, you have to give life your everything because it's deadly serious. And the punchline, the joke, I mean, the, the life is a punchline. I mean, we're, we're, at the end, it's all a big joke. At the end, we're just worm food, and it's just, uh, it's all a big failure, you know? I mean, we're, we're, we're built, ultimately, to fail. And so 
uh, I mean, I don't really feel that darkly about life, but just this constant juxtaposition that if you, if you really live intensely, the laughs and the tears are really all the same stuff. Mm. And it's attending our every moment if we choose to really be open to it. And so that's why, and that's why I, I do not shy away if a joke presents itself on stage moments before playing a death march, it's fine with me. Uh, and, I, and, and I'll probably offend some people in those moments. But, um, but to, me, that, to me, that's where some really great sort of philosophical, meaningful things actually exist for, for my taste. Yeah. And, and someone who doesn't feel that way shouldn't come to my concerts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't feel so bad about ending with this one. Uh, Black Mass of Scriabin. <laughs> it's just a minute or so excerpt. But yeah. because um, you spoke so eloquently about this music... Um, and it, it is a little bit, of, <laughs> uh, perhaps, you know, a, a come down in terms of mood, but, um, I, I want to, it's just so powerfully beautiful. Any, anything you want to say by introduction of this piece or your relationship with Scriabin? Yeah. Thanks so much, Dave. I, I do want to say only that for, it's a seven minute sonata and, um, for five and a half minutes, it, it promises by these awful gestures you hear, like what must only be these death moths. And, um, this is just my own imagination, but it's like blood dripping down walls and you think there's this horrible beast like what is this horrible beast and at the very end in the music that the beast actually reveals itself for just about uh four measures which take uh two and a half seconds and it's just everything that the piece seemed to be promising and i have to tell you um at one moment in the music as it's leading up to that scrabin writes in french one of my favorite directions i've ever read in any piece of music um the, the music is um it's so sinister, and yet at this moment, it's it's kind of like the sirens uh, from from Greek mythology, where it's it's seductive and monstrous at the same time, mm -hmm. and it's and it's irresistible and it's sexy, but it's so horrible, and you know it's not quite right. Mm -hmm. And he writes in French. He says, um, with uh, uh, with with more and more sweetness, um, caressing and poisoning. <laughs> I'm not sure where we pick up in the drama, <laughs> but uh, we, we have this clip. Black Mass, uh, the ninth piano sonata of Scrabin, played by Andrew Armstrong. Um, Andy, thank you so much for taking the yeah, time today. Dave, it's so been great to talk. We've covered a lot of you. ground <laughs> here. Uh, I, I wish you well on the recovery of uh, 
the hand and sorry that that happened but thank, uh, you, Dave. Um, thank you for staying around and it was uh, therapy to talk about with you. <laughs> that's what we're here for of course let's give andrew armstrong a hand here. So that wraps up our latest podcast. Find this program and our entire podcast series online at seattlechambermusic.org. Uh, this conversation is also online at king.org. The Summer Festival continuing tonight, July 7th through the 29th, and all of the remaining concerts on the air at Classical King FM, hosted by my colleague Peter Newman. He will be here for next week's podcast. He'll be filling in for me while I go to cello camp in Northern California. Uh, the next podcast with Lorna McGee, July 12th at noon. James Ennis, our artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. Connie Cooper, executive director, our engineer for these podcasts, is Bill Levy. I'm Dave Beck from Classical King FM 98.1. Thanks so much for listening and for being here.